It's good to have so many children in the church, but it obviously has its practical challenges. Lots of toing and froing around the back. We have a superb team under Tory who do such a good job. They really, really do. She does so well. And uh, it's, uh, if you're a visitor, your children are in very good hands and will, I'm sure, have their own uh, meeting with God, if I can put it that way, in their own way out there. I trust we'll continue to meet with God. We had a good, t- lovely time of worship, real sense of God's presence there. And I, I want us to keep in- engaged with him as we look into his word in a moment. Just giving those parents a few moments to say that uh, uh, Steve and I had the privilege of going to a two-day sort of prayer retreat, I suppose, is one way of calling it, with uh, Terry Virgo and a bunch of other leaders from different spheres, actually, in the old New Frontiers. So it was lovely to meet guys from different backgrounds. And we had a, a great two days, really wonderful times of prayer and fellowship, just meeting with God. So it's always refreshing. Terry organises these things at the beginning of the year. Um, we had the privilege of being able to go. And then it was a bit of a, see, like feast of famine with these things, a bit of a feast week in this sense. We then, uh, all, the elders and wives were at, of this church, were at an elders and wives uh, 24 hours yesterday through, uh, no, Friday through to yesterday afternoon in Fareham, it, just for the commission churches in this area and sort of up through to Surrey. And excellent time, really good time again together, lots of good fellowship, but also some very uh, helpful talks from uh, Graham and Charlotte Webb, who lead the church in Liverpool. Um, and uh, just, uh, just good to be together. So it was a great few days. Um, it always feels like you can't afford the time, but when you go to these things, you really feel you meet with God. And I, I, to be honest, I, I just think that's a lesson in itself about our lives. Often you don't feel you've got time for those times with God, time for those prayer times that will take out, you know, even if you can in your own busy lives, take out a slot of time to be with, with the Lord. But it's always worthwhile. So, praise God. Good to be back with you. I've, I've got the privilege of speaking the next two weeks. And I'm starting a new series with us called Heading Upstream. And it's about navigating our culture. And uh, it's from the book of Daniel. And so I'm going to briefly pray. And then I'm going to get into it. Because it's only a bit of a sort of overview this week. So I'm certainly going to read the Bible. But it's, it, I've got the two weeks to look at the first chapter. And I shall enjoy that. As some of you know, I'm usually trying to pack everything in. So I've got a little bit of flexibility this time. That might work to your benefit. We might finish before 12 o'clock. <laughs> uh, don't worry, visitors. It's usually before 12. Okay, let's pray. <laughs> Lord, I pray that we have a very good time feeding on your word this morning. I pray, Lord, that you would just open our eyes and teach us about our lives here and now as we read this amazing story from over two millennia ago of your people fighting for you of their faiths, declaring the truth in an alien culture. Lord, please teach us and speak to us. Holy Spirit, we welcome you here among us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, this is a new series, and it's going to be in Daniel. As I say, I'm really quite excited about looking at this, and uh, it's navigating our uh, culture, our overview of Daniel, and we're going to start by looking at chapter 1. We won't read it for a moment or two. I'll give you a little bit of background, and then we will read chapter 1. But we're going to come across in, in Daniel chapter 1 in a moment three, uh, sorry, four uh, men, Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. 
Now, these four young men were taken from Jerusalem as captives in 605 BC. So this book is about two and a half thousand years old. But you will find that God speaks to us out of it today. And this is how the Bible works, to be honest. We, we read it and we understand what God was saying to them then. And the Holy Spirit helps us and applies it to us now. So we don't ignore the background. We don't ignore the history. We don't ignore the dynamics of what was going on. In fact, that's how we learn from it. And we realize that as God worked with them and spoke to them and gave revelation to them then, so he reveals himself to us. We get illumination and inspiration ourselves as we read it. Same Holy Spirit with us as with them. That's how we enjoy our Bible. So it is absolutely useful and relevant to know a bit of background. I won't be too long. I do like history, as you know, but I will tell you some things. So these guys were taken into captive, uh, captivity in 605 BC. They were from well-to-do families. They had a very comfortable life, and they would have been brought up uh, fully understanding uh, the, Christ, the, sorry, the Jewish faith, uh, faith in the I am, Yahweh. They would have been quite, I think, conscientious by the look of it, young men who followed their faith of their parents and understood God's word. And they lived, you'll see in a moment when we read it, probably pretty good lives, so probably from the upper stratus of society in Judah and in Jerusalem. But in 605 BC, their lives were turned completely upside down. The uh, city where they lived was overrun by the Babylonians, a pagan empire, very powerful, very cruel, and and, and pretty unstoppable, uh, overthrew their nation, and they were taken into captivity. Now, it was even worse in the sense that they'd, in their short lives, and by the way, this is really, I hope, interesting, they were probably only, these four guys were probably only 14 or 15 when they were taken into captivity. I'll tell you a bit more about that in a minute. So we're talking about teenagers, and they were taken into captivity. Now, in their short lives, much of the time, there had been a pretty good king ruling, a godly king, Josiah. And he had ruled, so it would have been a prosperous time. It would have been a time when God's word was honoured. But Josiah, who was an exception, by the way, most of the kings weren't like that. Josiah lost his way. He stopped really focusing on God. He stopped really following God's ways. And he relied on his own wits. And what he did was try to get into a war that he should never have got into. He tried to get, make alliances that he should never have made. And the result was... Things went badly wrong quickly. He got killed in war. And he was followed by Jehoiakim, who was more reverted to type for the kings of Judah and Israel. Went back to being faithless, idolatra, someone who didn't lead the people well, didn't focus on God, but focused on pagan gods. And so everything began to go wrong. And the enemy ultimately swept, swept in in a three short years into Jehoiakim's reign and overthrew Jerusalem. Now you just need to know that probably from their point of view, Daniel and his friends, it seemed like, well, it was going so well for about 10 or 11 years and now it's gone chaotic. But actually the bigger picture was that there had been a long period of decline with Israel and Judah. And most of the kings had not been godly or led the people at all well. All sorts of awful things had gone on. And the northern kingdom of Israel had already been overrun by the enemy. They lived in the southern kingdom called Judah and in Jerusalem. And they weren't much better. 
And this then was part of God's judgment, as we'll see in a moment, and it occurred in their lifetime. Now, Daniel and his friends then, 15, use your imagination, they're uprooted from a familiar world with real godliness, real security, uh, probably quite a small world uh, in a sense. It was a small nation and these weren't big, big, big cities like uh, Babylon was going to be. Uh, Jerusalem wouldn't have been big by Babylonian standards. And they are taken nearly a thousand miles from home. It's 800 and something miles from uh, what we know, the geography we'd know today, from Jerusalem, as it, pretty well where it is today, to where we think of as Iraq and uh, more down the area around uh, Euphrates, perhaps, uh, I don't know, Baghdad. Babylon was a huge city in what is modern-day Iraq. So they were taken from Israel, Jerusalem, to Iraq and to this huge city of Babylon. Huge by probably even our standards, it was pretty big, but by their standards, massive. Now, they had obviously been taught the ways of the one true, true living God. They had been taught that... The people of Israel, the people they belonged to, were God's people, God's treasured possession, his special people. They were the apple of God's eye. Uh, uh, you know, they were favoured, and they were favoured by the grace of God. But of course, that quickly got meshed in where we're really special. You know, nothing can touch us, nothing can hurt us. This is the right way to live the way we live. And what happened is they ended up in a culture, Babylon, where everything screamed the other way. Everything. I mean, this was a pagan culture. They worshipped a number of different gods with some pretty hideous uh, religious rituals. It was cruel and powerful, but it was huge, and this really must have been a shock. It was clearly pretty successful. I mean, it was ruling the known world, the Babylonian Empire. They were unstoppable. Their way seemed to work quite well. And it seemed that the juggernaut of Babylon, without even taking any notice of the true living God and Yahweh, was doing quite nicely, thank you. And that must have been quite a shock to these young, intelligent, uh, wise, in their own early years, they were godly young men. That must have been a shock, a cultural shock. I mean, we're the people of God, we followed the only one true living God, and here we are, we're captured, taken 850 miles. We're in this massive city, which is just like a complete culture shock in itself. And, and actually nothing here is about God. It's a pagan kings and this and that. And, and what happened to our God then? Well, I thought we were God's special people. Now, I think straight away you can see real parallels to many of us as Christians in this culture and in modern Western culture, modern world perhaps. But I am thinking from where we all live now. Particularly if you're brought up in a Christian home, I was. If you're brought up in, uh, in a good, healthy church like this, um, whether it was a Christian home or not, or if you're just a young Christian, maybe not such a young one, and in this culture, suddenly you look out and you think there's all sorts of people doing all sorts of things out there that aren't right, and they seem to be doing fine. And actually, the culture which has gone steadily away from God seems to be motoring along. And people who defy God's ways in different ways, uh, you know, right or left, if you like, in political terms, but people who defy God's ways seem to get quite strong and successful. What's this all about? How does this work? I thought we were the people of God. I thought God's ways always work. And uh, if you are a younger person, as they were, you perhaps go to uni or college or work or all of those things, and gradually it hits you 
This is a big world and it doesn't work by God's rules sometimes, often, and yet it doesn't seem to be weak. It seems that, that, that all the atheists, that they've got it all tied up, all the evolution, you know, it's all tied up, it's all buttoned up, the television, the media, the culture goes that way and we're trying to go this way. We're trying to swim against the current. So we pick up the story in Daniel 1 and I'm going to read it eventually in a moment. And what you need, this, this, when I'm preparing for things like this, I'm always learning new things. I have preached on Daniel before, many years ago, but I'm always learning new things. And in the commentary I read, there was a very good case made for the fact that these four guys are 17 years old in what we're going to read. They are 17 years old. So if you're 17 this morning, this is your morning. They are 17 years old in this particular chapter. Why is the commentator so confident? Well, he said that 17 was the age of adulthood in ancient Babylon, and it was the age at which you were allowed to enter the king's service. And this chapter we're going to read is about them coming into the king's service and being prepared for serving in the court of the king of Babylon. You could add to that the overall time scale of the book of Daniel because Daniel continues to serve a number of kings and was probably in his 80s when he died eventually. And that means the start of that service had to be quite young in life. So it's probably pretty likely, almost certain, that these guys were 17 in the story we're about to read. So let's read Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put it in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashphenaz, chief of the court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. They were going to be made Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, They were to be trained for three years, and after that they would enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had caused the official to show favour and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has assigned you the food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official appointed over, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the other young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. 
So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. Yippee! To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked to them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of Cyrus. That was a long time. And that's just a little editor writer telling us that was the beginning of a long period of service to these pagan kings. So we're going to look at some big themes and background things just for a while this morning. And next week, we're going to dig into some of the detail of what I've just read in chapter one. But what I'm saying is relevant to it, but it's a bit more of an overview. Now, there are several big themes, probably two major ones in the book of Daniel. And the first one is this. The Lord is king. Could you put up big theme one? Thank you. The Lord is king even in Babylon. That is one of the themes that comes right throughout the whole book. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, God is still in control. God has not lost the plot. He's not been sort of outwitted by a pagan king or demonic power behind the pagan king, which is true as well. He's not. And ultimately, Daniel is an optimistic book because it says God is sovereign over history. History is his story. Let's look at a couple of verses we've just read, but they'll go up on the screen. And let's pick up something you might not have noticed the first time. Perhaps you did. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So much, so humanly straightforward. Look at the next sentence. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put them in the treasure house of his God. It is clear God did it. The Lord delivered Jehoiakim. This was not out of God's control. Indeed, Nebuchadnezzar himself was raised up or permitted to be raised up by God. And part of what happened was a judgment on Israel and Judah. And actually, as well as that, what was happening to Daniel and his friends was a part of God's mercy and protection and provision. Because these guys would be very key in preserving the true faith of following the living God, preserving it through 70 years. And if you know your Old Testament history, you'll know what I'm referring to. Don't worry if you don't. 70 years later, there would be a time of restoration when Jerusalem would be rebuilt, and time when people like Nehemiah and Ezra feature in our Old Testament. And Daniel and his friends were part of a preserving of God's promises and purposes that they might carry on, that we might be here, that Jesus might come eventually. 
through uh, the line, David's greater son, great David's greater son, and that there would be a saviour for the world. There's a huge big story which Daniel would have only half, well, he wouldn't have half, he'd only got a, a sense of. He did have some sense of it. You'll see that if you read the second half. But there was a big thing going on, second half of Daniel. But there's a big thing going on, and somehow God is doing one thing with Israel, and it's God that's allowing that judgment. But he's also preserving something, and he's doing something with his godly guys. And they are part of the, what God's tapestry is weaving. And they will ultimately, they'll have died by then, have preserved something that goes back and restores Jerusalem. And ultimately, from that will come the Messiah. And ultimately, all God's promises will be fulfilled. And God is working his purposes out as age succeeds to age. That's an old hymn. Amen? God is working his purposes out as age succeeds to age. God is, has not lost control of history, hadn't then, and he hasn't now. You can see Trump come up, Brexit uh, votes and all the things that people fuss about. God is still on his throne. Amen. Amen. God is in control. History is his story. And actually, even some of these grim things are this, this thing here. Have a part in God's plan. And that is scary sometimes, but it's true. And God had allowed the Babylonians to come to prominence and power so that they would bring an element of judgment to Israel and purification, if I'm honest, and bring through a remnant that would carry things on. Now, Daniel is very aware of that. And in fact, in the latter chapters, 7 to 12, he brings prophetic words and pictures. And there's other stuff in Daniel that's right out there in a way. It's a bit like Revelation, quite hard to follow. But it's clearly about the big picture, what God's doing in history. Now, we aren't going to study those chapters because there's, there's a good reason for that. Because the first six are much more practical. They're about these guys living in this alien culture. And that's where we're going to focus. But that overall big picture is still true for you and me. That whatever's happening, the Lord is king. God never loses the reins. He never loses control of things. He is sovereign over all. Everything. Now, here's another big theme. Trust in God, whatever the circumstances. And that's what we'll pick up from Daniel and from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And uh, things are good a lot of the time. They're not all bad. Then they go very bad sometimes and minorly bad. Like in this chapter, they're not quite so serious. Not quite like being in the lion's den. That's coming later. But whatever, you've got to trust in God. You trust in God, whatever the circumstances. Daniel and his friends learn through some pretty tough things. You keep your eye on the Lord and you trust him. And you look for God to either deliver you or bring you through it or give you favor with people, which happens in this chapter that you couldn't have manipulated or achieved. God will do something. You trust him. Don't compromise. Trust him. That is one of the big themes of Daniel. But with that, and I have to say, you know, it's already been touched on. With that, there is some mystery and there is some, it's not all comfortable, there's some difficulties. I mean, the obvious one is what had happened to their nation. What had happened to Judah? What had happened to their families? We don't know. What, you know, they've been overrun by the Babylonians. There's a sobering fact that things don't always go as we imagine they should. The circumstances aren't always comfortable at all, remotely. 
but you trust God through it. These young guys, I mean, I admire them. No wonder they're heroes in the Bible. From the age of about 1415 to 1718, they have gone through a horrendous time. Having had a wonderful upbringing, peaceful, nobility, whatever they were, they're suddenly ripped out, I don't know, from their homes, clearly from their families, and they are brought into Babylon, and yet they are clear. They're trusting God even in Babylon. Already their character is clear. That's going to come more clear as we read later chapters. They are trusting God in all sorts of circumstances. Now, really, just to t- I want to digress briefly to talk about this factor of the judgment of God on Israel because when God does things provoked by evil people, which is what happens to Israel, good people can get caught up in it. And these guys were not. These were only 15. They weren't suffering for their sins. This was a much bigger story that had been decades. No, there have been centuries of decline in Israel. Centuries. There have been some awful kings. Manasseh, read some of them. Awful kings. Ahab. There have been some awful kings in Israel and Judah. And, and to be honest, judgment was overdue. God had been warning and warning and warning about how, I mean, prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah are all pre-Daniel. They're warning, they're warning, don't, don't keep going this way. God's going to judge you. It's not like a, oh, God, get a, he woke up and he got a bad day and, he, you know, he had a bad night. He, you know, he's in a he's grumpy mood, so he decided, Phew. No, no, it's not like that at all. There are centuries and centuries of warning and some pretty clear warnings. Isaiah, Jeremiah, read them for yourself. Pretty explicit. And again and again, Israel and Judah ignored them. And then there is a reaping what they sowed. And poor old Daniel and his mates are caught up in it. And you know, sometimes it's like that for us. I mean, we have had, I have had by God's grace, a comparatively easy life. And my country has been peaceful and stable. My, my dad actually lived through two world wars. My father lived through two world wars. He was in the Navy in the First World War. He was called up as an 18-year-old young man. He was in the Navy. And the Second World War, he was an air raid warden in London and his house was bombed and flattened by a, by a bomb in the Blitz. And, and you think, I mean, I've had, I'm not saying... Well, that was judgment. I'm just saying, big stuff happens and you get caught up in it sometimes. And, and this is what happened to them, but they, they still held on to God. But it's a, it's a, there's a complex story behind this sovereignty of God. God is not just working stuff only for their benefit in isolation. They do benefit. God does protect them, but it's sometimes in the middle of a storm, which is a much bigger thing. Are you with me? Because that's how our lives can be too. You know, if there's a financial crash, it'll touch us. But God can take us through. I have been through them. And God can still provide for you. God can still meet your needs. It's how it is in life. And it's what what happened here. In fact, the judgment issue gives me, I've got to be careful I don't spend too long on this, but gives me a moment just to digress slightly with the gospel. Because we can thank God that we live after Jesus came and died. When you're reading the Old Testament, you've always got to remember it's an old covenant. And that's going to be relevant to next week when we look at some of the detail. How did they walk with God in their day? Well, there's another story there. But we are actually people of the new covenant. Jesus has now come and died and risen. 
And if you didn't think this was good news anyway, I'd want to give two minutes to say it is the very best news possible. Because there is this incredible thing where Jesus has borne the judgment for your sin and my sin. And it's almost like what we sowed, he reaped. I don't know if we can even put it like that, but I think we can. Our sin was laid on him. Look at this amazing couple of verses from Isaiah. Now, Isaiah is frankly in the middle of this sort of situation, is looking forward and saying one day God's going to provide an incredible answer. He's going to send a suffering servant, a suffering king. Isaiah is very clear. And this guy, he's going to be pierced. That's amazing prophecy. And this is why he will take up our pain. He, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. We considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, in the New Testament, these verses and others around them are referred to again and again in different ways as being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now, here's something to get because we live in such a favoured time, we can forget it. God hates sin. God judges sin. He has never changed. He's always been gracious and merciful. He's always been holy and a consuming fire when it comes to sin. He's been both of those things throughout eternity and history. It's not like in the Old Testament he was a grumpy old so-and-so and now he's a soft-hearted Father Christmas. That's not true. He is the same yesterday, today and forever. God has no shadow of change in him. What has changed is the incredible way God has dealt with sin in men and women. He has provided a saviour. He has provided an answer. Something that was looked at in type, in picture, in the Old Testament. Lambs were slain for sin and it got the point. Look, sin requires death. That animal's dying instead of you. The blood of that animal is instead of your blood. And that blood, Passover, can be on your door and you can be safe when judgment comes. But there was a lesson in it. But it was only a picture. The reality is Jesus did die for our sin. He bore our iniquities. He bore our suffering. Not only our sin, but the consequences of our sin. He was pierced for our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities. God laid on him what you should have had and I should have had laid on me. We all, like sheep, had gone astray. We all went our own way, ignored God. But the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's amazing. And you should never treat the cross lightly. In fact, you should never treat the gospel lightly. You should never think, oh, it's really nice. It meets my needs. Yeah, you know, I'm, yeah, maybe I'd like Jesus as my friend. No, you were under the judgment of God. And he bore your punishment. By his stripes, you're healed. Both spiritually and ultimately physically as well. And we'll have new bodies, which we don't deserve. It's all come from the cross. Everything comes from the atonement. It all does. And it's amazing. It's amazing what the gospel teaches us. It was beyond the understanding of Isaiah, really. He was writing it and trying to understand it. The New Testament says they dimly got it. 
We are in the good of it. Is that exciting or not? It's wonderful. If you're not a Christian this morning, get right with God now while you can. Don't meet him as your judge. Meet him as your father, your loving Heavenly Father. Jesus has provided a way for you. If you don't allow, as it were, God to deal with your sin in Jesus, you will carry it yourself. God does not ignore sin. He does not sweep it under the carpet. And that's what had happened for Israel. For us, there is this huge and wonderful answer. I have digressed, but it's a very important digression. Let's quickly come to a a section just to, to bring things to a bit of a conclusion over the next 10 minutes. We're going to focus... In the, as I said, in the first six chapters in this series, we're going to focus on living in Babylon. And again, I'm not getting into the detail of the first chapter, but that we'll do next week. But these chapters are about how we as God's people, Christians in this day and age, followers of Jesus in the New Covenant, how do we live in an alien culture? You see, these guys, Daniel and his friends, they were citizens of Jerusalem, And yet they were living in Babylon. And that is a very important sort of, actually it's a long, big biblical part picture, goes from right through the Bible really, that God's people are always a bit like Daniel and his friends were. It's not quite so vivid and in your face for for us as it was for them, but it's pretty near sometimes. We are, in a way, foreigners, aliens on earth. Not aliens like, take me to your leader. We're like refugees, foreigners. We don't belong here. That's what the Bible says. Pilgrims, all sorts of words. It's like we're citizens of the heavenly kingdom and we're living in the dominion of darkness. Okay? Now that is tricky. We are like... um, You could argue resistance fighters in the Second World War living in enemy-occupied Europe, for example. It's not straightforward. We are uh, citizens of Zion, God's city, but we're living in Babylon, which is the world city with plenty of demonic influence. So we're living in this alien culture. We are the culture that's not going the way of God. And that's not new to the 21st century. That's how it is. It's always been like that for God's people. We stand in a line with Daniel and his friends, in a line with Esther, in a line with many others of the Bible, and certainly in the New Testament with the church, Paul in Corinth, and the church in Corinth, or Ephesus, or Rome. That's how it is. You are in one city, but you belong to another, God's city. And so it is challenging. What, when we belong to Zion, but we're living in Babylon, what do we do? How do we cope with this? How do we live like this? How does it work for us? What do we do? Now, there are probably three options. There's probably a lot more, but I'm summary up in three. You could, A, settle down and let ourselves be assimilated. Now, I think, A lot of people from Jerusalem must have done that. There were others in this group. These weren't the only four taken. And there's no, they they ate the royal food. We'll we'll look at that later. They clearly uh, walked a different way by different standards. I would say that's happened all through history. I think Christians and churches 
can respond like this. Maybe some of us feel a bit like this. What do I mean? What is the this? Well, they say, I suppose. Well, God is in control. He's working his purposes out. Who knows what he's doing? I guess in the end, we've got to just get on with our lives and survive and do whatever's necessary to keep everybody happy around us, not to make any waves and just to fit in and become Babylonians. You know, we don't want to look weird. So, you know, if that's what they do, we'll, we'll drift with the with tide. We'll go with the current. We'll go with the flow. Maybe I even should forget about Zion and just try and make Babylon more benevolent. I think quite a few Christians and even churches drift that way. Let's forget about Zion and an alternative culture. Let's just make Babylon a bit nicer. Well, that is one option. Here's another one. B, fight Babylon on every point. Now, some Christians do that. In history, some of God's people have. That's probably how the Pharisees got started and the Zealots, like Simon the Zealot. So that is you stay rigidly committed to every tradition from your particular group's past. You live in an attitude of deep suspicion, even open hostility to everything Babylonian. You fight every attempt to impose Babylon on you. Some of you might even die for that. You have a holy hatred of Babylon. I don't belong here. I don't like it. Everything is stinks. Everything could be dangerous. I'm on guard all the time. I'm suspicious. I'm antagonistic. I minimize all contact with Babylon. Now, some groups would literally withdraw. I, I, I keep right out of the way of everything Babylonian. I minimize the interchange or ex- social exchange with Babylonians. Now, some Christians would say that's probably the only safe option. Or there's perhaps another one. C, be in the world, but not of the world. Now, I would argue that not only Daniel, which is where we're going to focus, manages to live like this, but it's, it's the way that probably Jesus and Paul would have lived. Now, you might read some of that and think, well, I thought they were a bit more B, you know, fight it all. No, 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 I don't think so. You look carefully at Jesus. Uh, he was, they accused him that he, you know, he, he went with um, publicans and sinners and, uh, and yet he seemed at ease talking to a Nicodemus or the woman at the well or a saved prostitute came and wept, wept and annoyed. You know, he seemed to have an ease with Zacchaeus, the sort of wealthy con man, businessman, tax collector actually. You know, all sorts of Jesus seemed to be able to be in it without getting totally messed up by it. And I think Paul was also like that. All things to all men to a degree. He could speak to the Athenians. He could speak to some pretty rigid Jewish legalists and he seemed able to do it. And I think Daniel and his friends certainly are of that in the world but not of the world variety. And so we're going to be learning what does that mean. And these are some of the lessons we'll get. These are only headlines. Lessons from Daniel and Co. General overview. Here's the first one. You can cooperate without compromising. You can. You can cooperate where you can. You don't have to say, well, cooperation equals compromise. Daniel and his friends did not meekly conform to what the culture required. But they are not rebels. 
They're not religious fanatic, fanatics. They're not political. They're not trying to kill the king of Babylon. They work with it. They are work within it. You'll see that as the story goes on. Their policy is to cooperate as much as possible, but not to compromise on fundamental values. Things like that we'll see. I won't jump ahead. You'll see that. So they, how do they do that? Well, I think briefly this is what they do. They never sacrifice that inner understanding that they belong to another kingdom than Babylon. So they're right in it, but inside their identity is not Babylonian. Their identity is God's people. Can you do that? Do you understand your identity is in Christ? It's not in anything else. It's not in your age group, your culture group, your subculture group, all the other things. That's not your identity. Your intelligence, your lack of it, your work screen, that's not what you are. You are a child of God. You belong to Jesus Christ. And whatever you're doing day by day, you never forget that. He is who, your master and Lord. He's the one you belong to. That, I think they got it. I think they never were internally Babylonian. They were God's people. Daniel later you'll see praying every day to God. He always knew where his home was, where his heart was. And therefore, in a very healthy way, and this is important, there's always a sense of them a little detached from the culture they're in. They're right in it, but they don't belong to it. So I don't think they have as big a battle as we think they might to say no at certain times. Because you understand this is not what we do. We followers of Jesus don't do this. We don't sag people off. We don't tell dirty jokes. We don't sleep, sleep around. We don't do this. We don't do that. We can make the list endlessly. We don't fiddle our books. You know, we don't tell lies. I just don't do that. So it's not, that's not where my, I, that's not how it is. So there comes the moment when you have to say no, and it's not perhaps, it might be costly, but it's not perhaps as difficult as it looks from the outside, because you already are of a different order. You march to a different tune. You know where your real roots and identity are. And that is a huge challenge for us today with all the pressures, social, community, peer pressures that we live with, the cultural pressures. Are we willing to obey Jesus and live for him as our fundamental uh, direction in life? Do we make our decisions in daily life, all of us, whatever age we are, do we make those decisions in the light of our relationship with Jesus or not? Do we make it in relationship to what other people think of us? What the church might think of us even, let alone work. No, or do we make decisions out of our relationship with Jesus? That's what is central and important to us. Can you decide for yourself what to do out of your walk with God or do you wait to see how others will jump? That's a big thing. That's a brave and big thing to do. Don't do, I've got to see what others will do. No, I'm going to hear from God. And I, I would say the others might include other Christians. I mean, there were other, other people from Jerusalem around them. They didn't make their call on this first chapter, which we'll look at, about the food, just because of what, what's everybody else doing? Are they eating the food or not? They made it themselves before God. And that made them a distinct little subgroup, which ultimately carried something precious through. I haven't got time for these, so they're just headlines. Number two, fellowship with other believers is essential. These four guys fellowshiped a lot together. They're like a cell group. They're a community group of God's people. They clearly prayed together, studied together, discussed together, and decided together. You can see it for yourself. 
And that is very important when you're trying to survive in Babylon. You can't do it on your own. You need other Christians. You need the friendship, support. You need to talk it out. What do we do about this food thing? What do you think? You need to talk it out with other Christians. You need to pray it out. You'll find Daniel telling them to pray for him in a later one, the next crisis. They prayed for each other. You need to be part of a healthy, Bible-believing, Spirit-filled church. This would be one if you're here, but if you're not here, find one and belong to it. It's essential. If you want to survive as a Christian in modern Britain, you need to belong to a healthy, Bible-centered church. You really do. And you need to engage with it, and you need to meet with Christian friends to talk and pray about life and what it throws up for you. It is part of the principles of survival that we will learn from these guys. Thirdly, God's work progresses through ordinary people applying faith in daily life. I must stop doing that because Donald Trump does it. I will. <laughs> you. Don't know what to do with them now. Um, no, really. It's wonderful. These guys are not priests. They're not big religious figures. Oh, there's a whole sermon here. Be careful, John. I mean, it's quite interesting that God's, when God judged Israel, all the, all the stuff from the temple was taken and desecrated. This would have utterly shocked the people of Israel. What's going on? I thought everyone got struck dead if they went in that temple. But these Babylonians say, what are we learning here? God isn't that interested in buildings and institutions. <gasps> He's not. He's interested in people who believe him and behave in the light of their faith. That's what God He's always been interested. Yes, he uses these things. He uses buildings and, and systems and institutions more in the Old Testament than the New, but he does use them. But they are totally dispensable to God. God is not excited about this building or the cathedral. He's excited about the people in it. It doesn't matter if it's modern and posh and lovely or it's old and quaint and glorious and historic. God's not that bothered, funnily enough. He wants to know if the people in it believe him and obey him. That's what he was interested in. And he's quite capable of sweeping these things aside if it doesn't serve any purpose. And even in the Old Testament, that's clear. Because they completely, they got the special temple and they got all the bits and bobs, but they weren't worshipping God at all. They're following other gods and living horrendously. So God, the Lord, said, well, Babylon can have it. I don't want it. You're not using it right anyway. And, and, and actually there is a, a, a thing here where it's people like Daniel and his friends who carry the torch of real faith. People like you, and I hope me. We are not, this is not about institutions and systems and leaders and things and what are the church doing and what's the Archbishop of Canterbury said. God, that might be a fine, I'm not anti him, but God... Look, it's about us. What are you doing at work every week? How are you walking for Jesus? God's interested and God preserves his stuff. I don't know what way to use. His people by real people doing it. That's how it works. It's not preserved through systems and leadership things and buildings and institutions and written down constitutions. Not primarily. It's preserved by faithful people teaching other faithful people who pass it on to other faithful people. That's what it says in Timothy. Doesn't it? I've made it people to be 
says men, actually, but it means men and women. And that's, that's how it's done. So actually, Daniel's telling us in big letters, it's, it's ordinary people believing God and walking with him in difficult, world-engaging situations that carry God's purposes forward. Amen. And finally, you can, I think a general principle we'll learn from them, you can bring glory to God and be a blessing to the world. You manage, they seem to manage to do both. What do you mean? Well, they don't think it's just glorifying a God to complete the, the completely withdraw, have nothing to do with Babylon, don't touch them. Actually, they glorify God right in the thick of it, right in. They become higher, well, Daniel becomes nearly the highest in the land apart from the king. And they become, uh, one time he's chief of the mu- musicians, chief of the magicians. How did he handle that? He's in charge of all these weirdos. And actually, actually somehow does it. I don't know. It's sort of civil service, but a weird civil service. Um, but, you know, and yet somehow they do it and they are a blessing. They are a blessing. I mean, this is, I am ending on this point, but I think this is a very, very important one. You can be involved in the world. You can be involved even in politics or even in high office or headmaster or head of a business and walk with integrity with as a child of God. You can do it. And you can glorify God in it and be a blessing, even to the world. Because alongside their allegiance to God, the, ooh, alongside their allegiance to God, they are ready to bless other people. They do. They are sensitive to unbelievers' needs. They will let them tell them their dreams and their visions. They will endeavour to address their worries. They will engage and talk intelligently and sensitively with the very Babylonians around them, even those who are in charge of them, who have them as sort of slaves, posh slaves really. They will talk to them with grace and care, but they never compromise their walk with God. Trust in God in all walks of life. Understand that God works in all sorts of ways in your situation in the world. With your neighbours, at work, at school, at college. Be aware God is over everything. He can even make people who don't believe in him think differently towards you. That's how it ends here. I think... As we look at this, and we've only looked at it in a general way, we're looking at it in more detail in the weeks ahead, it's very, very exciting. You can live, all of you, every day as an adventure with God. You don't have to be scared of Babylon. You can glorify God in it and be a blessing to others, even sometimes though they're ignorant quite why they're as blessed. It happens with Joseph. Think of Joseph as well if you know your Bible in the prison, in Potiphar's house. God does that sort of thing. You can glorify him and be a blessing to others. Who knows what God's going to do with you this week? All of you. We're not going to sing. Thank you, James. Sorry you prepared a song. We're going to stand together. This is how we're going to end. Let's stand together, please. I want you... This is literally how we're going to end. I want you to pray for each other. If you're a visitor, please 
don't get too embarrassed. If you realise the person next to you is a visitor, just introduce yourself. That person doesn't want to pray. Just be friendly and talk to them instead. <laughs> but if they are happy to pray, and if you are happy to pray, and I hope that replies to most of you, I want you to pray in groups of two or three for this week ahead. Each one of you. And I want you to pray that God will help you to glorify him and bless other people as his people in the middle of whatever you've got this week. Amen? Pray for your week ahead. That's how we'll end. Please just do that in little groups of three or four. That you will be a blessing to others and you will glorify God this week. And that you will be guided how to do that.